looking at the, the book of 1 John together. So why 1 John? Um, well, there's this famous saying you've probably heard. It, it's buried in 1 John chapter 4, um, where the Apostle John writes, God is love. Um, he says, God is love. And um, we can ask the question, what does that mean? Like both of these words, God and love, are contested words in our culture. Right? There are lots of different opinions as to what these could mean. Um, right? What they might mean to me might be different than what they mean to my neighbor. Um, and for many of our neighbors, saying God is love is a harmless statement. Right? It's easily affirmed. Um, they can be cast aside like thousands of other tweetable statements that most people make these days. Um, but what if this statement, what if God is love isn't just a trite truism? What if um, in this statement, God is love, is, what if there's contained a deep mystery? Um, a deep mystery of the universe that you actually can't figure out on your own. Something that you can't think about enough to just arrive at, but it's actually something that needs to be revealed to you. Something that you need to discover. So that's why we're reading 1 John together. My hope is that over the time that we, we study this letter, that um, you will have a better understanding of what it is that um, uh, this means when, when it says to us that God is love. So uh, just as by way of orientation, what is 1 John? 1 John is um, an epistle, which means it's a letter. It's in the, the back of the New Testament. It's one of the last letters in the New Testament. And it was written by the Apostle John to, um, to churches in the first century. At the end of the first century, he wrote this. And the Apostle John uh, was a close friend of Jesus's. He, um, he was the youngest of the disciples. He wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote these epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He wrote the book of Revelation. Um, and tonight, as we look at 1st John chapter 1, what we're going to hear is not only the statement that God is love, but that we can actually know the God who claims to be love. So if you all will read with me, we're going to read 1st John starting at the beginning of chapter 1 and going through the second verse of chapter 2. It's printed on the back of your bulletin. Um, you can follow along there, or if you have a Bible, you can follow along there as well. This is God's word for us tonight. Um, it is completely true, and it is given to us in love. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it. And testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is a message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is the word of the Lord. 
Please pray with me. Um, Father, thank you uh, for tonight. Um, Lord, thank you for the words that we have sung together. Um, Lord, uh, and the words that you have spoken to us, we pray that you would help us to make sense of this passage, that we might see you and see Jesus. Um, We pray in his name. Amen. So my um, outline for tonight, it's on the back, is uh, the possibility of fellowship with God, the hindrance to fellowship with God, and finding the way into fellowship with God. So first, the possibility of fellowship with God. Uh, There's a recent book that uh, was written by a a church historian and a biblical scholar guy named Larry Hurtado. And the name of the book is, Why on Earth Did Anyone Become a Christian in the First Three Centuries? Why on Earth Did Anyone Become a Christian in the First Three Centuries? And as a, a historian, he asked this question because the early Christians were widely ridiculed, especially by the cultural elites. Um, They were excluded from circles of influence. They were excluded from circles of business. They were often persecuted. They were put to death. Um, And Hurtado writes that the Roman authorities were uniquely hostile to Christians compared to other religious groups. There is this enormous social cost for being a Christian in the first three centuries. And there were people who were becoming Christians in the first three centuries. I mean, so why did, why, why in the world did anyone become a Christian in the first three centuries? Why did Christianity grow exponentially during these 300 years? I mean, what did Christianity offer that was so much greater than its costs? So Hurtado names two things that make Christianity unique among the religion offerings of the day, the religious offerings of the day. And they were this. They were sal- salvation by sheer grace alone. That salvation is not... Um, is not achieved, salvation is, is received. Salvation is not something that we achieve, it's not about being religious, it's not about keeping a list of rules, but salvation is something that God has accomplished for us in Christ and it's received. And the second thing that made Christianity unique among the other world religions is that it offered a direct personal love relationship with the creator God. That in Jesus Christ, there is the offer of a dynamic loving relationship with the creator. And those two things still, um, salvation by sheer grace alone and um, a dynamic love relationship with God, um, those still stand unique amidst the religious and secular offerings today. And so tonight what we're going to do is we're going to take a few minutes to talk about the second one, this offer of a direct personal love relationship with the creator. Now, if you're a skeptic here tonight, um, I know that this sounds absurd. Because from the outside looking in, Christianity just looks like rule keeping. Right? If you follow the rules, then you will earn God's acceptance. But that's not Christianity. And at the heart of the Christian faith, faith is a love relationship with God through Christ. Um, and Christians in the room, you might not know this, but our non-Christian neighbors find this hard to understand. This is unbelievable to their ears. And frankly, I mean, often it's hard for me to understand this offer of a dynamic, personal love relationship with God. And yet this is exactly what John is saying in these first few verses. As he introduces this letter, he begins by saying two things about fellowship with God. First, he's saying that he and the other apostles, this is the the we, as he writes, um, that he and the other apostles actually knew Jesus. They heard him speak. They saw him with their eyes. They hugged him. They touched him. They walked with Jesus, this man who died and rose from the dead. So when John claims that we, when he claims to have this dynamic, direct personal love relationship with the creator God. His starting point is his friendship with the resurrected Christ. 
And the second thing is that this relationship with God is on offer to all people. If you look at verse 3 with me, John is saying that he's writing this letter so that you may have friendship with God. So that you may have this dynamic, direct, personal love relationship with the Creator God and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Now this might sound crazy to you, but I want you to imagine something with me. Imagine that you are an alien from a foreign planet, bear with me, and you come to Earth and you meet a human and they bring you to a beehive, and they reach into the beehive, and they pull out a handful of, I don't know how this works. I don't know how you get honey from a beehive, but imagine this is how it works. You reach into the beehive, and they pull out this, this gooey honeycomb of honey, um, and they tell you to eat it. All right, this is the first time experiencing a human, experiencing honey. Now, they could do this. They could explain the science behind this, what the bees are doing with the pollen, how they create this sweet, syrupy goo. Um, they could write you a poem expositing the flavor profile of fresh honey, the explosive power that it has on your tongue, but you will not believe them, right? This just came out of a beehive. Like, you will not re- believe them. You will not believe them, believe how good it tastes until you actually taste it for yourself, right? You won't know the sweetness and the taste of honey until you actually taste it for yourself. And the Bible makes the same claim. Psalm 34 says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. The invitation from God to know him, to enter into fellowship, to enter into friendship with him, is this invitation to taste and to see his goodness. Now, some of you might say, you know, um, that sounds great, John, but I don't need organized religion to know God. Like, I I don't need Christianity to know God. I experience God, maybe I experience God when I'm outdoors. Um, When I'm in the wilderness, when I'm on the top of the mountain, I have this experience of God. Um, And yes, I don't deny that. I don't deny that you experience the greatness and the majesty of God in nature. But knowing God in nature will always be one way. It will always be you worshiping God for what he's made. But it will never be dynamic. It will never be personal. It will never be love. It will never be a relationship um, where God becomes your heavenly father And he actually melts your heart with love. And John says that this dynamic relationship, this is on offer in Jesus, and that it's marked by joy. That's what he says in verse 4. Look at verse 4 with me. He says, we're writing these things that our joy may be complete. John is saying that human joy, or that having fellowship with God and sharing that fellowship with others brings true joy. He's saying that the true joy that you long for, the true joy that I long for, is found in relationship with God through Jesus. And and found in relationships with other Christians who share in that fellowship. You might be thinking, like, that sounds great. I want joy. I want contentment. Contentment that's not contingent on my circumstances. And John is saying that that joy comes through fellowship with God. Right? See, if, if God is our creator, and we are his creatures, and he has built us to experience joy... Right, we, why do I say he's built us to experience joy? Well, we all want it, right? Like, we all have this longing for contentment, for satisfaction, for joy. Um, we, we have this sense that we're built for it. Like, we pursue things that we think are going to give it to us. Um, we're designed for um, this dynamic love relationship with our creator. And this, ra- this raises the question, if we're built for this, then why don't we have it all the time? Like, why do we find ourselves still longing after joy? Why do we find ourselves still longing after that elusive contentment that we never seem quite to get? So for those of us who are Christians, why does this joy feel elusive? And for those of us who aren't Christians, um, maybe perhaps ask yourself the question, why haven't I tasted the, the taste of that sweet, the sweetness of that pure honey? 
And the way that John answers this question is by making this thesis statement of God, about God in verse 5. He says, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. There is no darkness at all. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. The Bible offers us lots of metaphors to help us make sense of who God is. We're told that God is a fortress, that he provides shelter and security. We're told that God is a rock. Right? He's a firm foundation that we can stand on, that we can rest our weight on. We're told that God is a shepherd. Um, he's one who guides us and he keeps us from trouble. And here we're told that God is light. God is light. Not that God is a light among other lights. Not that he's a light bearer. God, not that God, um, he doesn't have a light as, one of his, has light as one of his characteristics, but that he is light. And although he did create light, he himself is uncreated light. And in him there is no darkness at all. And what John does in these next few verses is he, he gives us this stark contrast between darkness and light. And what he's saying here is that there are two ways to walk through light. With the lights off or with the lights on. When I was a kid, we used to play this game called Dark House. I don't know if it's a real game or we just made it up. Um, but what we would do is we'd turn off all the lights. Is this a real game? Yeah, some of you might have played this. I don't know if it's real. All right. We'd turn off all the lights. We'd blindfold one person, and then everyone would hide in the room. I remember playing in my next-door neighbor's basement. And um, so the lights would be off. The person would be blindfolded. Everyone would hide in the room. And then the, person, the blindfolded person would just kind of walk through trying to tag someone. And we'd always be shoving stuff in front of them, like pillows or chairs or toys. Did you guys not play this? And you just watch the guy bump into stuff or fall down. Um, and what I learned from Dark House is that walking around in the dark is really hard. Um, walking around in the dark is really hard. Now, if you take off the blindfold and you turn on the lights, the game isn't any fun. Because you can see everyone and you don't trip into the chair or trip over the toys. Um, tagging people becomes really easy. John is saying in these verses that the effect that sin has on our lives is it's as if we're walking around in the dark. We hide things. We cover up our failures. We cover up our insecurities. Um, we wear masks. We pretend everything's okay. We don't let people see the real me. We don't share our secret addictions. We, we cut corners. We cheat. I learned today that 75% of all college students admit to cheating. Like, and the stat it goes back to the 60s. Since the 60s, 75% of college students admit to cheating. Like, we, we all do things in the dark. And to do this, to walk in the darkness, John is saying that this keeps us from knowing God and his light. And John is saying that if we say we have fellowship with God, but we're walking around with the lights off, that we're actually living a lie. He says this in verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with God and walk in the darkness, we lie and we don't practice the truth. And then it intensifies. In verse 8, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And then even more intensity in verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. I mean, it, it, it intensifies. And what he's saying, he's saying the reason that you're anxious and you're scared and you don't have joy is because you're walking in the dark. And God is light, and in, there, in him there is no darkness at all. So if you want joy and peace in this dynamic love relationship with the creator, you can't have it if you're in the darkness. Like it's, he's saying it's impossible to do both. And this is why any sort of double life, any sort of double life of wearing the face of being a good Christian in one world and wearing a different face to a different group of people in another, this is why it's so exhausting. 
Because all of it is deceit. You can't have fellowship with God when you're living in deceit. Now, some of you who are Christians might be asking the question, well, does God still love me when I'm sinning? And the answer from the Bible is an unequivocal yes. That he loves his people, but he does not love their sinning. In fact, he hates it. And what John is doing here in the starkest of terms is that he's laying out for us our problem. The force of these verses is to show us how bad sin actually is. That it's as opposed to God as darkness is opposed to light. So what's the solution? Um, How do we enter into fellowship with God? How do we get the life of joy that we know, that we, we, we have this longing for, that we know we're created for? Well, think about this the way that we usually go about doing this, right? How do we usually go about getting joy? Well, often we try to get joy without God. Or we try to go to God on our own terms, right? We, we cover up our sin. We hide the darkness. Um, mention a couple of ways that we do this. One of the ways we do this is that we fill our lives with Christian activity. We fill our lives with Christian activity, right? We do this. We think that this will produce joy, right? Like after something that happens in the darkness, we think... Um, I'm just going to commit to praying more. I'm going to commit to reading the Bible every day. I'm going to go to RUF. I'm going to go to church. Um, We say that we're going to be a better Christian, whatever that means. That actually doesn't mean anything. But this is the stuff we tell ourselves. And it doesn't lead to joy. It actually leads to exhaustion and to your growing anxiety. So we fill our lives with Christian activity. We also fill our lives with commercial activity. We just buy stuff, right? We just buy things thinking that they will produce joy. If I can distract myself from how hard things are, from my sin, from others' sin, by buying something, I'll do it. Um, This is why for Lent this year, I gave up buying stuff. Because, um, and it's been really hard, (laughs) to be honest, it's been really hard. Because this is what I do. I have this habit um, where I buy something online, it arrives two days later, magically, and um, I own it for two weeks and then I return it. Does anyone else do this? Am I the only one? You don't have to raise your hand. I'll be the person feeling shame up front. Um, right? Because what it does is the act of purchasing something feels really good, and it distracts me from any darkness, any sin that I, that I feel. Um, but ultimately, it doesn't work. Right? Ultimately, it doesn't work. This is why fancy vacations and new clothes and spa retreats and your new car and that new iPhone don't actually satisfy you. Because you're using these things to cover up the darkness, and it just doesn't work. I mean, it's amazing how foolish we are in this. Like, you know, we have to deal with the darkness. We have to deal with the deficit, with the negative. Thinking that we can fill our lives with something, thinking that, we, um, that our doing can bring us up to God. Um, one way of seeing this is it's like having $10,000 in credit card debt. Imagine you have $10,000 in credit card debt. And the way you think of remedying this is going to buy more stuff to make the, the ache of the debt go away. Not only does it not help, it only makes things worse. Your debt just grows. I mean, we are looking for joy in any place other than God. And when we do this, we miss it because none of it satisfies by itself. And John is saying that the joy we long for is found in fellowship with God. And the only way to enter into fellowship with God is on God's terms. So what are God's terms? Quickly, I want to say there's two things in this passage that he points to that are God's terms for, for entering into fellowship with him. Um, his work for us and our response. So first, his work for us. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 for me. 
There's two key words in here that um, I want you to pay attention to. The first is propitiation, and the second is advocate. Now, propitiation is not a word that um, you may have ever heard before. It's not one that's a regular usage. Um, But what it means, propitiation literally means that the wrath you deserve has been absorbed by a substitute. And that goodwill has replaced ill will. It means that the, the wrath you deserve has been absorbed by a substitute and that goodwill has replaced ill will. For example, let's say that you caused a traffic accident. And you do several thousand dollars worth of damage to someone else's car. They have a charge against you. And when you pay the sum total of the damages caused by another person, caused to another person by your accident, that person is then propitiated. Right? You have paid back. They are propitiated. They have no more claim against you. And this is what Jesus has done for you. Jesus propitiated the holy wrath of God against our sin by suffering the full penalty in our place. On the cross, every ounce of penalty that you and I deserve for our sin was poured into him. He took the fullness of God's wrath and displeasure for sin so that in Christ you might have the goodwill of your father. You might have your father's smile and not his frown. So that's propitiation. Advocate is a legal term. It's referring to somebody who argues your case before a judge on your behalf. So if you have faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus is your advocate before the Father. He stands there like a lawyer pleading your case. But what is he arguing? Like what, what is Jesus' case for you against your Father? Like he's not, like advocates usually are arguing your innocence before the judge. But we're guilty. So instead of arguing your innocence, Jesus is arguing his propitiation. He is arguing his substitutionary work on your behalf. He says, Father, you can't hold John's sin against him. I suffered the full penalty for that sin for him. I heard one pastor put it this way. He says, sometimes we see this idea that Jesus was standing as our advocate before God. And we think that it means that Jesus, that, that Jesus was standing before God pleading for leniency on my behalf. And that... As Pastor said, that provided very little comfort for me. Because I imagine Jesus going into the heavenly courtroom with a stack of case folders with one marked bourgeois. And he pulls out and he says, okay, Father, it's it's bourgeois again. Can you give him one more chance? He's a good kid, really. Please, pretty please. Come on, Father, you owe me. I went to earth, everything for you. And, you know, um, deep down, wondering, would I reach the end of God's patience? I would say I sinned for the 515th time, and the father would say, that's it. No more leniency for bourgeois. Even with you in his corner, Jesus, he's done. He's got to pay for that one on his own. Here's the thing, though. Jesus doesn't appeal to God for mercy on my behalf. He appeals to God for justice. He has satisfied all of the claims against me and now says to the father, Father, I paid the full price for his sin. I took the penalty due to him so that he could have the credit due to me. It is only right that he not be held accountable for that sin. God isn't merciful and kind to forgive our sin, but he's faithful and just to forgive our sin. Look at verse 9. This is what it says. God is faithful and just to forgive our sin. God forgives our sin not because he's lenient, but because he is just. And because God is just, he can't demand two penalties for the same sin. Jesus paid the full penalty for us. And this gives me great confidence before God. This is Jesus' work for us. 
So what's our response? Look at verse 9 with me. John writes, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What he's saying is that the way into this dynamic, personal love relationship with God is confession and repentance. Confession is uncovering the darkness. It's agreeing with God about your sin. And repentance is turning from your sin towards God. Repentance is to go in God's direction rather than your own. Repentance is not something that God demands of you before, in order to take you back. It's not something he demands of you in order to take you back. It's our response to his gracious action towards us in Christ. Rich Mullins, who is a, a, who's a Christian writer and musician, um, tells a story. He says, when he was a kid, he would walk down the church aisle and be born again, again. Or he'd re- rededicate to his, life, his life to Christ every year at camp. And then in college, he said he'd do this about every six months. And then he'd do it quarterly. And he said by the time he's in his 40s, he would do it about four times a day. This is what repentance is. It's not just the way in. Repentance is the way forward. Repentance is not usually a single moment that's wrought in high drama. This is the steady drumbeat of the Christian life. It's the how-to of life in Christ. It's how you walk in the light. It's getting up when you fall and stepping into the sunshine of God's love. In closing, I want to end with this. Um, Throughout the passage, the Apostle John is making clear, making it explicitly clear, that the only people that God welcomes are sinners, not those who think they can clean up their act. But lots of times we approach God, or the way that we approach the God, God is similar to the way that we go to the dentist. I mean, think about what you do the day of your dentist appointment. Right? You brush, you floss like three times, um, even though you've never given floss in like six months. You rinse, you repeat, you show up to the dentist, your gums are swollen, you're hoping he won't notice. Notice, you tell him you've been flossing every day for months. Um, But the guy's a dentist. Like, his job is to look at teeth. He knows what's actually going on. Um, But yet, we still go through the same routine every time. So why do we do this? Why do we do this when we go to the dentist? Because what we want to do is we want to show the dentist that we don't need him. Like, my goal when I go to the dentist is to hear the hygienist say, Wow! You're so good at cleaning your teeth. You don't, you don't need to come here anymore. And then, like, to walk out, and they'd be like, John's done. Like, he won. He won the dentist's office. How similar is our approach to God? Right? We think, if I can just get these, these couple of sins under control, if I can get in a good Bible reading routine, then God will accept me. But what we're really doing is we're trying to prove to God that we don't need him. And the gospel tells us that God welcomes those who need him. He welcomes those who know that they can never make themselves clean on their own. The ones who think that they can get their act together never will. But the ones who know they need God are the ones who will be welcomed by him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you um, for your word to us tonight. And we thank you that Jesus is both the propitiation for our sins and our advocate before you. We thank you that the offer for us in Christ is an offer to be reconnected to you um, in fellowship with you. Lord, I pray for my friends tonight that this would be good news to them. Um, and thank you um, for your good news to us in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. If you all want to stand, we're going to sing one more song.